How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And today we are listening to episode eight of our series, Be On Guard. Michael is teaching from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I don't know about you. I grew up in a, a Catholic background, Catholic church. Uh, we come from different backgrounds in a, in a room like this. And uh, the word judgment uh, had all sorts of tentacles around it. And of course, today in our politically correct uh, worldview, uh, you can't judge people. You can't be judgmental, right? We've all heard this. And Oh, you're being judgmental. That's judging someone. And of course, uh, language gets hijacked. We've talked about this a lot. I will talk about it till I'm dead. Language and nomenclature, the way it's used, takes on new meaning. And so the word judge automatically is bad. Well, there's a number of judgments in the Bible. Most people think about one judgment. But there's actually five or seven judgments in the Bible, depending on how carefully you, you study the passage. We're going to look at a series of judgments this morning in 2 Peter that have to do primarily, specifically with false teaching. God takes it very seriously, and he will judge false teachers. We could almost start this text by saying the most politically incorrect thing you're going to hear this year, because God does not tolerate error. God has a heavy hand when it comes to error. Now, when I say that, he's not capricious. He's not a malevolent God who's rubbing his hands, waiting to destroy or punish people. He wishes none to perish, no, not one. But as a holy entity, as the sovereign, as a good God, he cannot tolerate evil or immorality or error. So you, you must keep a biblical theological lens when you think about the worldview, how they vilify judgment. And we don't want to run around judging everybody and being sort of high and mighty, but every time you make a decision of some kind, you're making a judgment. Every law on the books is a judgment. Every law, I remember a professor in college saying, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. And he, he would say that at least every lecture. And I, I would think, wait a minute, a stop sign is legislating morality. A stop sign says if you don't come to a complete stop, they can judge you. If you run an intersection and hit someone, you're guilty of that. Every piece of legislation is a moral statement. But we let the culture indoctrinate us to the point where you can't say anything critical. You got to be nice. You be, and I'm not saying you run around with the hammer and nail illustration. I am saying be smart. You are smart. Use your brain and your noggin. As uh, Dr. Gray, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse told my mentor, Howard Hendricks, Hendricks, 95% of the will of God is found from the neck up. <laughs> Use your brain. Use your noggin. You don't have to be this, you know, people lost in some swimming sea of we got to be politically correct all the time. Well, let's look at the passage. We're in cha chapter 2 of Second Peter. 
And as I reminded you last week, this whole chapter is devoted to addressing false teaching. The first three verses we looked at last time, uh, Peter gave a prophetic picture of false teachers. What's going to happen to them? Today we're going to look at verses 4 to the first part of verse 10, and this establishes the fate What's going to happen to false teachers? And then in two weeks or a few weeks, we'll pick up the last part of the chapter because we will take a break for Thanksgiving and Christmas season. Uh, We'll look at the the vivid description of what happens to these false teachers. All of chapter two is about what false teachers are going to face. It defines false teaching, it explains it in context, and the examples today are very simple. Now, for those of you who are grammar folks, Bible study, how many of you are literature majors? How many of you love to read? Okay, good. Uh, those of you who don't, it's not a judgment against you, but our brains are wired differently. Some people like literature, some don't. I love literature. I love studying this stuff. And I, I always am amazed how little I know when I get into it. This is one sentence in Greek from verse 4 to the first part of verse 10. For those of you Bible study folks, uh, who, or, or some of our translator folks, this is, this is either, either hate it or you love it. I love it. Uh, the, the nuns would call this a run-on. The grammar teachers, that's a run-on sentence. And I, I get marked in red because it was too long of a sentence. Well, the apostle Peter got away with it, so I think it's not a run-on sentence. Uh, it's one sentence in Greek. Because of that, it's two-sided. We've got to take it a little slow because it can be a little cumbersome, but you don't want to take it apart so slowly that you, you miss the overall structure of what the apostle is doing in this one long sentence. He's going to give three historical examples, let me say this real clearly on the onset. Everybody knows these stories before we start at this time. When Peter was writing this, his audience was completely familiar with the illustrations that he's going to use to explain what happens to false teachers. And most of us in this room will also be familiar with these stories. So let's look at these three examples of God's judgment in the past. Let me read verses 4 through 8, 2 Peter chapter 2. Actually, it's on the screen. Let's read it together. Will you read with me? For if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, or reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. I was just seeing if you were reading... Let's read verse 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteousness tormented day by day by their lawless deeds. The simple point is three illustrations where God does judge. The first one has to do with sinning angels. Now, when you read this casually or quickly, you go, that's kind of interesting that, number one, these otherworldly creatures somehow sinned that these otherworldly creatures somehow disobeyed God. That's kind of a head-scratcher. And for those of us that like Bible studies, like, what in the world is going on with this angelic storyline? The high point is, 
even if these supernatural creatures sinned and God judged them, who are we to think that human beings are going to get away with it? That's sort of the, the, the bottom line of what he's saying in this illustration. If they're not spared, who are we to think will be spared? Who are false teachers think if they'll be spared? The word spare simply means to save from loss. It's used by Paul in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. He let Jesus die and be buried to confirm the death. He didn't spare his own son. Well, the angels were not spared from their judgment. Now, Peter doesn't identify the angels, nor does he specify their sin, which, of course, opens a Pandora's box of possibilities of what in the world is going on and what did angels do. Any of you read the Frank Peretti books years ago? A few of us. Uh, Peretti had a vivid imagination. Remember, it's Christian fiction. Put fiction in all caps, Christian fiction. Uh, It was a made-up idea of of angelic realms, and if you haven't read them, no big deal. But he had a very fanciful idea of the angelic powers that are going on. The point of these not identifying or specifying leads people to all kinds of things. Um, I will appeal to Isaiah chapter 14, and Ezekiel 28 for the most seminal passages you need to study about the angelic realm, and let's call it pre-Adamic, before Adam. Meaning, when God is creating the world, he uses this, this realm of angelic beings that we know a lot about, but we don't know everything about. And he uses them as messengers, as emissaries. Of course, we know about Michael the archangel. We know about Lucifer. We know about Gabriel, so forth and so on. But these beings, they don't marry. They don't procreate. uh, They're not saved. So they're a complicated subject matter. Peter's giving an illustration here that they were judged for their sin. So there's a number of possibilities. I like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Most of your Bibles will have Jude 6 as a cross-reference embedded in your Bible there, which read, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, some of you Bible students know the story of Genesis chapter 6, when it says the sons of God cohabited with the, the daughters of men. And there's some pretty fanciful interpretations of what that means. Uh, one of the most interesting and oldest ones is the angels somehow had relationships with human women and had this super species that were procreated. And I know people that firmly believe that. They're wrong, but they believe that. Um, there have been a lot of good scholarship uh, gone into that passage over the decades to try to find out what in the world is going on there. And uh, to, to, to summarize it, because some of you wrestle with that passage, they were either demons, despots, or degenerates is the easy way to remember it. I line up with the, the idea that they were despots. They were rulers. The idea of the sons of God being an elaborative term saying these were the princes of the day. These were the powerful men of the day. These were the ones who had built cities and empires that had armies. And they were taking uh, egregious liberty, as kings do, building harems and so forth and so on. And so it got out of hand in Genesis chapter 6. That's my view. I could be wrong. I'm not going to follow my sword for it. But Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are very clear of the hubris, I will be like God. I will ascend to the Most High. I will, I will. And the hubris of that angelic realm, Lucifer and his minions that went after him, become what is known as the demonic world. So all that said, I can't be bulldogmatic about it. What is Peter saying here? 
if these super otherworldly creatures who disobeyed, sinned against God, are in a waiting, uh, let's call it a prison cell before judgment, who are false teachers to think they're going to get away with teaching the wrong information? That's his broad stroke point. Uh, John, 1 John uh, 3, 8 reads, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning that's the key term. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So I go back to what we call pre-Adamic in the beginning, when it's God in the tohu v'bohu, when it's the earth is formless and void, before God starts a creation system in its place. They're cast into hell. Most of your Bibles have that phrase. It's one word in Greek. It's the word tartaro, tartaro, which gets glossed into English tartarus. And some of your Bibles might even say thrown down to Tartarus. What's fun about this, and this is where I love context and a little bit of history, is to go back in time and understand what did the first century audience hearing this letter read understand about this? About 8th century BC, Homer is writing about Tartarus. Let me read you what one commentator summarizes. Homer spoke of Tartarus as a subterranean place of punishment where Zeus banished the Titans. I guess that's why they're still doing so poorly. I don't know. <clears throat> Just see if you're listening. <laughs> he said, remarked that a brazen anvil falling from earth nine nights a day would reach Tartarus upon the 10th. So you envision this huge anvil falling down and how deep and dark Tartarus is. That's the point he's making. In this dark, dark place under, the misty, under misty gloom, surrounded by a bronze fence, it became known as even, uh, which even the gods abhor. This is 800 years before our New Testament. Making sense? Okay. Eventually, Tartarus became known in Jewish literature retaining the idea of a place of punishment. It appears closely equivalent to the Jewish Gehenna, or the Valley of Henna, which becomes hell, that supplies the Jewish background. Thus, Tartaru carries the sense of cast into hell in this context. All that just is a side illustration to say, when this first century audience heard about these angels being tossed into this place, they had a picture in their mind. Make sense? That's all he's doing. If you think false teachers are going to get away with teaching false theology, you've got another thing coming. Let me give you three illustrations that you would all know. The first one being these fallen angels. The apostle uses Tartarus to connect this with the audience. They would understand that. It's a place reserved for judgment. It's a future judgment. Again, uh, others, lexographers, write a subterranean place lower than Hades where divine punishment was meted out. Peter seems to regard Tartarus as a place of a preliminary detention for these angels rather than their final place of punishment. These are spiritual criminals that are incarcerated in prison waiting for judgment. Judgment, we have a picture, it's a good picture of a judge behind a bench with a jury perhaps, the two attorneys, a client, and there's a discussion going on, and maybe it's a, only uses a judge. There's no, there's no jury present. The judge is going to make a judgment based on the information. So basically, these uh, angels are in some holding cell 
in a place literature called Tartarus, one word, they fell into this place, and they are there until the final time when God is going to judge them. First of all, he didn't spare sinning angels. Secondly, he doesn't spare the ancient world. Verse 5, and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, some call this the antediluvian world. Anti meaning before, diluvian in Latin meaning flood. Uh, it comes into English deluge. We think about being deluged with email. You have a flood of email, the antediluvian period. Uh, this is the second time that he did not spare judgment. Now, Peter writes again that the ancient world, and I think it's interesting, inclusive of humanity was the world itself. God wasn't just issuing a judgment on the sinful people that lived in Noah's time, but on the world, sometimes called the Noachan, and the Noah flood. God judged the world system and all it contained, but he preserved Noah. Now, the phrase preserve just means to keep, to keep watch on, to guard something, to protect it. But we've got this interesting combination here of Noah being called a preacher of righteousness. And we have no record in the New Testament of Noah, Old Testament of Noah preaching. And of course, there's been many elaborate attempts to say, well, if you're building an ark for all that time, you're preaching a sermon without using words. And we've all seen movie iterations. I don't know if you saw the, the one with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly on Noah. Uh, it's very accurate biblically. Ha! Huh? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's like, boy, you couldn't make this stuff. You had to be doing drugs to write that script. That's all I can say. There's just no way around it. But the one thing that movie got right, in my opinion, was the floodgates of the heavens and the earth opened up, which most people miss. I'm, I'm one of those crazy people that believes in a literal global flood. I'm one of those crazy people that believes the peaks were flooded on the top. I'm crazy enough to believe there was one tectonic, there was one oval part of what we call terraforma where people lived. And after flood, when the floodgates of the earth and heaven collapsed, otherwise you couldn't have a global flood, not enough water. And so when this occurs, and that, if you saw that crazy movie, they show this water coming up from underground in a very dramatic CGI way. I thought, that's a pretty good idea of what could have happened. The collapse of the canopy, the water's flooded. This word flood in Greek is kataklysmos. We bring in English, cataclysmic. We all heard that word. We know what it means. Three times Peter says in his letters, only uh, during the flood of Noah's time. This idea of being the angels are being cast to hell, are committed to this place of darkness, and he's going to bring a flood on the ungodly. Now, um, how did he preach in righteousness? Well, the building program itself, a building art, was a commentary. And again, in these iteration movies, whether they're the old movies in the 50s or the newer attempts, think about people that would come up and go, what in the world are you doing? Well, God told me to build this ark and put a bunch of animals in it. You're crazy. You're nuts. And so he's obey what what's he, is he preaching righteousness? I don't think he was opening, you know, the he didn't have the scrolls and talking about righteousness and righteousness. Righteousness and preaching it mean obeying God. God told me to do something and by faith I'm doing it. That's preaching righteousness. 
And again, when you do biblical theology, which we're going to see in the, in, in, as we go forward in this passage, it helps us understand a lot about things we don't always grasp in the context when we read it just in that one paragraph. Peter is building a clear and logical argument. False teachers are not going to get away with false teaching. They will be judged. Let me give you some illustrations of what that looks like. When we go back to angels who disobeyed God, they're in a holding place and they will be judged. Noah and his lifetime, people were judged. Ungodly people were judged. The planet, the context was judged. This cataclysmic flood came across them. And the third one is Sodom and Gomorrah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds." Again, a common expression the hearers would understand. Condemned at the root is the word judged. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Peter uses unique language. It's only found here in the New Testament, and it's the phrase reduced to ashes. It's the only time it's found. Um, some of your Bibles might say burned to ashes. Some might say covered with ashes. And so we get this idea of a volcanic imagery. In Genesis 19, when the cities are overthrown, we have the brimstone and fire that were rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, a lot of people have done studies and scratched their head. What are brimstone and fire? It sounds volcanic, but we can't be bulldogmatic about some of these terms. The point, however, is that and we do know this geographic, we're never going to find actual, well, never is overstatement. It's unlikely we'll find the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We do know they're in the southern part of the Dead Sea. There's, there's no doubt about it geographically. Remember, Israel is smaller than the state of Connecticut. So you only got so much to work with. And when you read the descriptions of land and the borders and boundaries, and when you're in the Dead Sea and you look down there and you look at the, 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 the Dead Sea, is one of the most unique is the most unique mineral deposit on the planet, lowest part of the planet. No microorganisms can survive in the Dead Sea. Some of you have been in the Dead Sea. It's a remarkable place. And um, the, the, the Old Testament teaches at one point it was a fishable area. And some believe in Ezekiel it will in the future have enough fresh water to sustain uh, some type of fishing industry, which is quite possible. All that to say... Uh, some believe that the raining of fire and brimstone was what, what the end result was the Dead Sea area. I'm not going to fall on my sword for that. I used to hold to that pretty tenaciously, but over studying and traveling to Israel so many times, I've, I've gone pause. Maybe that area is just a unique spot on the planet. Certainly, God could have done whatever he wanted to from a, a thermogeopolitical, I mean, a, 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 a volcanic activity. Uh, he's God and sovereign, and we don't always know when things come up. If you've been to the Great Prismatic Spring up in uh, Yosemite, if you've not been up there, you need to go see it. It's, you can spend a day there. It's unbelievably beautiful. And these minerals are still being analyzed. And they go, well, it's volcanic activity. I don't know. I'm not a geologist. But what I can tell you is the text is saying that God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the theological point. These cities were condemned because they were ungodly. Now, most Bibles connect Jude 7 with this story, which may is, is a good cross-reference. Keep in mind, this is what happens to the ungodly. 
This is how God is going to mete out judgment and even to false teachers. Uh, Let me read one commentator, Michael Green, who writes, the words in this verse are striking. The word trophosis or burning ashes or covering with ashes is unique in the Bible. But it was used of Dio Cassius in his account of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Everybody knows the story of Mount Vesuvius, 70 AD, blows up, kills everybody. When Pompeii was buried alive in lava, the total destruction was allowed by God to bring home to succeeding generations that unrighteousness will in the end ruin. False teaching and false behavior ultimately always produce suffering and disaster whether in Lot's day or in Peter's or in our own. This judgment will come. And so the word language, again, they would know the story. They would know about 70 AD. They would know about Pompeii. They would know this language. Well, he rescues Lot, verses 7 and 8. Three times Lot's called righteous. Now, any of us who studied Lot's life would not use the word righteous to describe Lot, right? Far from it. I mean, he and Abram split because of the prosperity of their herds and flocks. Uh, he chooses the lush valleys toward the south, which interesting because it's not lush today. It's negative. It's desert. And he goes toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Every time we see him after that, he's closer and closer. He's finally living in Sodom. So it's, we wouldn't think of him being a righteous person. And this is where his movement tells us more about his life. But biblical theology pulls things together and goes, wait a minute. Let's look at this a little differently. And that's what Peter is going to do for us. The Genesis account, writes Hebert, uh, leaves the impression that Lot was a rather weak and worldly individual, hardly noted as an impressive example of righteousness. Uh, in chapter 19, 1 of Genesis, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. And I've been guilty of teaching this, and probably you've read it and believed it too. He, when, when you're at the gate, that's like saying you're at the city council. You're an alderman. You're a councilman or councilwoman. You're a judge of the day. When you read the story of Ruth and Boaz goes to the gate, when you go to Israel, those of you who've been there, the gates of the city, we go to Megiddo and we spend about 20 minutes explaining the gates at Megiddo and at uh, at Tel Dan because people walk up and they go, so it's a gate. There's so much going on in the construction of those gates. They were built with stone. They were built like left and right turns. Why? You bring a bunch of troops in, if they're on horses, if you've got an army, they, it's like going through a turnstile. you got to take your time to get on the bus. You, not everybody can rush in. These gates were important. What was conducted at gate? The commerce. Who gets in? You're going to bring food and wares and goods to sell in our city? you got to go through the gate. What else happened at the gate? It was the judicial center of the Jewish law. So when Boaz goes to the elders sitting at the gate, think of going into the courthouse. Think of going into the courtroom in antiquity. So these images are very, very common sense even today when we read these things. So in 19, Genesis 19, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. And we're all concluding, he's one of them. He's become a Sodomite. Well, Peter's giving us some insight. He was a light. He was living in a very bad place, but he was a light in a dark context, which is intriguing to me. This is where biblical theology helps. Again, Hebert writes, the phrase oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men 
describes Lot's inner reaction to the evil around him. It pictures Lot as being worn down and exhausted, distressed and oppressed by the life of his fellow citizens. It implies their evil lives continue to be a burdensome weight upon him personally. He had not allowed his conscience to become so dulled that he was no longer pained by what he witnessed. Newman writes it in a chilling way. Our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. Our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. If, if sin no longer bothers us, we're we got a problem. Uh, boy, the parallels, if we could run real quickly. Where Lot lived and where we live, we've all heard the cliche, if God continues to let the earth continue, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And on some days when you read the news and hear things and interact with you know what's going on, it's like, my word, our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. Well, remember the story when Abraham, and God tells Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's this, this back and forth. Well, if there's so many righteous, will you not destroy it? And finally, if there's 10 righteous, will you not destroy it? Okay, if there's 10 righteous, I'll relent and won't destroy it. Well, obviously, there was either nine or less because it, Lot and his family come out, and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, note, he's living among them. It does not mean he's endorsing the culture, but he was living in a lawless time and trying to live righteously. The third then is, or, or, or finally then, let's think about thoughts on divine judgment. So we've got these three illustrations, the angels, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah that obviously God judged. What's Peter saying about this? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now, Peter explains God's judgment on false teachers. He's given us these three illustrations, but don't miss Noah is rescued, Lot is rescued, the righteous are rescued. So we need to think about what this means. The tension is to be in the world and not of the world. If this was merely a matter of you and me having great discipline and strong self-will, uh, we could all we could do this. We could take off the weight, eat the food, lose the weight. And it's a real simple process, right? You just do what you're told and things work out. Unfortunately, this isn't a, an issue of the flesh. It's an issue of, of the spirit. It's God's word, God's people, God's spirit as we ha live in this tension of in the world and not of it. Notice that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. I love this phrase. It, it, even in Sodom and Gomorrah, even in Noah's time, even in the pre-endemic period when the angels were going crazy, God knows how to rescue his people. As clear as Peter is writing, the Lord can rescue the righteous. Everyone is going to face judgment, and we want to be on the right side of that scale when we're facing judgment. Keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Parallels verse 4, cast them into hell for committing to pits of darkness. There, just think of it as a, as a prison cell where people are waiting for judgment. How many prisoners are on death row for years waiting for judgment? How many incarcerated criminals, repeat offenders, are waiting for years? They're in a prison cell. They haven't been judged. 
until they're judged and sentenced, okay, you're going to be sentenced to so much time in jail or time served, and then you're going to be on probation or we're going to let you go. Envision prisoners awaiting the judge. Finally, Peter wrote, almost like in bold-faced and underlined, he returns to these three things, flesh, the corrupt desires, and those who despise authority. It's almost comical. Flesh, corrupt desires, which is a euphemism for sexual sins, and then despise authority. I get the first two, but I don't like authority. What a commentary. God views those things the same way he views false teaching. If we are of the flesh, if our desires are immoral, which our culture is rife with, and do we despise authority? Oh, my word. Let's look at two lessons. Number one, false teachers and their kind will not escape judgment. Um, Again, politically incorrect to say, theologically sound. False teachers and their kind will not escape judgment. Angels, the ungodly word, the world, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cultures did not escape judgment. Don't forget, um, God is not capricious, he's not malevolent, he's not evil, but when evil runs its course, I think I've shared with you before, some of you have at least heard me tell this story, uh, after 9-11, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and of course, you know, the Pentagon was right there, literally five minutes from our church, and so a lot was going on that week, and I still remember um, when we had our first first church service after 9-11, it was like everybody's Easter times two. Uh, we had people standing in the hallways. I mean, it was it, four, four services, completely full, all four services. It was crazy. My uh, oldest daughter was in a public school where you know prayer wasn't allowed and Christian groups weren't allowed. And she came home from school and said, Dad, prayer broke out in the public school today. Nobody stopped it. Um, so 9-11 occurs, and many of you remember those experiences. Um, when these things happen and we're sort of recalibrated, people want justice. It's clearly wrong. There has to be somebody to do something about it. The fallen system is broken. We want somebody to do something about it. But look how many years later, and there's people that don't even know the history of 9-11. They don't even understand the motivation behind 9-11. They don't even, they think we're wrong to have views, and I'll say we, me, I'm wrong to have a view that says, I think we should protect our country from future terrorist attacks. I'm just that novel and stupid, I think. People that go to work and, and drive their cars and have little children and grandbabies, I want them to be safe. I want people to protect them. I'm making a policy about that. Oh, you're intolerant, you're unkind. 9-11 happens, that recalibrates. Pearl Harbor happens that recalibrates. Uh, concert in Paris where people are killed with a knife. People change their opinion. I'm not trying to make a political commentary on the culture. I'm trying to say there's something innate in the human heart that knows what's wrong. When the human heart no longer sees wrong, that's false teaching. That's the problem. That's the bridge too far, we might say. Well, False teachers and their kind will not escape judgment. Um, God's not capricious, but all of us are headed to hell on a freight train. Only those that respond by faith are then considered righteous. A second lesson is that all creation is accountable to him. And that might sound kind of strange at first, but when you understand Pauline language, and this is where Frank Peretti got a lot right in his writing, was that uh, 
Thrones, principalities, dominions, angels are this conglomerate of terms in the New Testament that refer to things we can't see. There are thrones and dominions and power that we can't see that are at play. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, says Paul, but against principalities, things that we can't see. Now, does that mean we go fight them? No, you're going to lose. What it means is someone else has to fight them in our place. But all creation is accountable, not just human beings, angelic realms. And I would say that, that what we would call nature. Um, the, the reason things are falling apart are not because of the human condition alone, although it certainly could be a contributor. Things are falling apart because the world is a fallen context. It's just like your body. I don't care how well you take care, how much you know, organic matter you eat, whether you're a vegan or a hallelujah diet person or like me, they're a carnivore who loves it, you're going to die. Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. You are going to die. You might live six years longer, seven years longer than me. You're still going to die. We're going to put you in a box or in the oven. It's going to happen. You cannot sustain it. It's a fallen system. You can slow it down. You can live more healthy. Sure. Yes, yes, yes. 100% mortality rate. You're going to die. Right? So all creation is accountable to what's happened. Peter's readers would understand there's a time of darkness. There's an ungodly world. There's immorality. There's corruption. But this despising authority thing gets me. I, I, Cindy and I are news junkies. We're political junkies. But living in the D.C. area <clears throat> ruined us or helped us for life, depending on your perspective. Um, in, recent, in recent months, since our current president election, the country is such vitriol and there's so much hate and animus and there's so much you know, demonstrations and stuff that's going on. It's really fatiguing. And people say, it's never been worse than this before. This is the worst time in history. All that does is reveal how people do not know their history. When a person says it's never been more divisive to me, I want to go, you didn't go to school. You didn't study history. You don't know a thing about our country. You don't think about Europe. You don't even know about Nazi Germany. When you use terms like fascism, you, it, all you've done is you said, you, you've spoken to a, a nuclear physicist, astro, you know, engineer, and you've told them that two plus two equals five is what you've done. You've just shown you don't know anything. But that's our culture. I'm not mad at them. I'm not calling them stupid. I'm saying they're revealing what they don't know. If you read during Lincoln's time, and everybody reveres Lincoln as this great president, oh, my word, the vitriol during Lincoln. The difference was it wasn't on a device in two seconds I could put out there and people believed what I wrote. That's our, that's our downfall. That's our weak knee problem. The point I'm trying to make is there's nothing new. This was 1950-some years ago when Peter wrote this. I find it comical and sad that he says despise authority. When you and I shake our fist at Rome, do you understand that when Jesus Christ lived, there was a malevolent dictator named Herod that ran the world? He killed Christians on a whim? He killed Jews on a whim. He didn't care about anything but power and land. He was a megalomaniac. If you've been to Rome, if you've been to Italy, if you've been to uh, Israel, you've been to Greece or Turkey, he's a megalomaniac. He, he enslaved people all over the world to build these huge palaces. Jesus, in one sentence, talks about authority when they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Set up question. We got him. We got him. 
If he says yes, he's a hater of the Jew. If he says no, he's a hater of God. We got him either way. Render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Render to God's what is God. Next question. And as my professor said, those Jews walked up going, who thought of that stupid question anyway? (laughs) Jesus answered it in one sentence. If it belongs to God, recognize God. If it belongs to man, respect man. Sending I parataxis as well you should. That's respecting authority. Sending I respect the, the lights in the back. If they go off, we pull over. I'm not mad at them. It's a, it doesn't matter if you're in Rome or Italy or Europe or a fascist country or United States of America. The believer in Jesus Christ is an otherworldly person who says, respect authority. But they're wrong as authority. Was Herod wrong? Was Hitler wrong? Was Mussolini wrong? Was Mao Zedong wrong? Think of current leaders in the world who who kill their own people and nothing has ever commented about it. America's got to wake up in the sense that not as a country politically, I'm talking about Christians. Don't let the world teach you theology for goodness sakes. The world's nuts. It's a fallen, broken system. Always has been. Always will be. And that's why you and I can live in a different fray. We can live, we don't have to be mad, we don't have to be angry, we don't have to be apolitical or super political. You can just love Christ, love people, and smile. That's really all you gotta do. Be confident in the future, not because it's gonna get better when someone else gets elected, but because your God is sovereign in spite of the elections, in spite of who lives at 1600 Washington, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Well, Again, Green writes, there are curious parallels between our contemporary scene and Sodom. For that city was famed for its affluence and softness, uh, and softness as for its immorality. And of course, like any men uh, come of age, they thought they had outgrown the idea of God. They found out their mistake too late. That's a good place to land. When a country thinks they've outgrown their need for God. When we prop up our finances, our health care, our lifestyle, we think we don't need God anymore. Let me leave you with two passages in brief from John, John 17. But now I come to you. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. Jesus is praying to his father in the earshot of the 11 disciples. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I did not ask you to take them out of the world. Darn it. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart in the truth in the context called the world. Let them know the truth. Father, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. Jesus is saying, God, will you set them apart in a crazy culture? This is 2,000 years ago. In a crazy culture, in truth. Don't just relieve them from the headaches of Rome that are killing them, Jews that are killing them because they don't believe in Jesus. Don't just spare them from that. Set them apart in truth. And then here's the coup de grace. He later writes in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You and I have to be otherworldly creatures in a world that's not our home. And trust that he will rectify, he will make right what is unjust and unjust. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.